right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Strong Steel Law Firm podcast. I am Alexander Eisner. I am not joined today by Mr. Sean Steele. He is jet-setting around the world. Um, but I am, however, joined by a world-class neurosurgeon, an amazing physician, and uh, more personally, a great uh, human being, uh, Mr. Andrew Fox. Dr. Andrew Fox. Dr. Fox, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me again. It was a real pleasure last time. Looking forward to a wonderful conversation today again. Oh, that's sweet of you to say. Yeah, so uh, we have, uh, as people are sort of trickling in, I uh, I want to ask you to reintroduce yourself a little bit to people. Um, I know you've been a guest before. People could go back and look, uh, listen to the last time you were on, and that was a great conversation sort of about neurosurgery in general. But um, to, to just give us your bona fides, what, what, what do we need to know about Dr. Fox in terms of his, uh, why should anybody listen to you? It's really what I'm asking. <laughs> My wife says the same thing. <laughs> right, mine too. So, uh, you know, m my training was in uh, neurosurgery and I completed my residency at UC Davis. But earlier part of my residency was actually in SUNY downstate in Brooklyn, where we saw a lot of trauma and spent a lot of time doing spine surgery, taking care of brain injuries, particularly severe head injuries where you'd have to put ventriculostomies in, intracranial pressure monitors. So I spent a lot of time treating very sick people. And then as my career evolved, I spent a lot of time doing spine surgery, but still take trauma ER call. I still volunteer faculty at UC Davis. I do trauma call there with the residents at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. So it, it's been something, um, I feel that it, it's not just about operating, but also giving back to the residents and teaching and head injuries and learning those sorts of things. Uh, why listen to me? got 20 years of experience, uh, built a pretty successful practice in Sacramento when I lived there. And now in LA, our group also, we were, uh, I worked for Providence for a while as director of uh, neurosurgery at Cedar sinai Tarzana Medical Center. But now going private, we've opened multiple offices around Southern California, Northern California, Calabasas, Sherman Oaks, downtown LA, as well as Vallejo and Sacramento still. Uh, we've got multiple physicians, and uh, we've been able to build a good group where we're accessible to many of the local physicians, chiropractors, therapists, be able to get patients in, and they get a, a very fair opinion and good treatment in our practice. So uh, for the most part, I think people have been happy with our care, and uh, I think through the years developed a, a good reputation in our in our industry. Well, that's, <clears throat> that is uh, certainly a, a good enough bona fide for me, uh, and I, I appreciate that you uh, that you talked us through that. Now let's jump let's jump right in. We don't have a ton of time. I want I want you to just really talk us through what um, how you interact with chiropractors. I mean, what what is what is it that they should be looking for in terms of a referral to a neurosurgeon? Uh, and what is it that you're looking for? So sort of in two parts of what is it that you're looking for when you're reviewing a patient file, particularly chiropractic records and notes um, that uh, that is helpful or not helpful in, in your in your workup? So let's maybe start with the former question. What should a chiropractor be looking for in their uh, patients? Now, this is we're talking PI mostly. So in, in, a, in an acute injury sort of situation for uh, a referral to a, someone like you, a neurosurgeon. I, I wouldn't leave it just for personal injury. I think just in general, 
a chiropractor gets a patient in, and if they've got, you know, it's always you taking the history first from the patient, how things happen, and then you examine them. And then you're looking for really neurological findings and uh, weakness. You know, numbness and tingling can be subjective, but there are certain parts of an examination where you, you can't fib as a patient. You can say, okay, my arm hurts. Oh, I got numbness going into great. But when you've got abnormal reflexes, so things that you can test for like clonus, Hoffman signs, and you find something like that on an exam, then you should rush to get an MRI and then rule out something bad. And if there is something, you should really bypass the referral of going to pain management and more to the surgeon. If there's a large disc herniation compressing the spinal cord, there's signal change in the spinal cord, uh, whether it's cervical or thoracic. Uh, if they've got a foot drop, those are things that once you recognize in your office, and, and chiropractors are kind of the gatekeepers. They're gonna see the patients way before the surgeon will. We're at the end of the line most of the time. So that first examination is important, documenting if there's any neurological findings. In regards to head injuries and traumatic brain injuries, I think obtaining that history, loss of consciousness for what period of time, they go to the ER, was there a head CT? A head CT may not necessarily show you a traumatic brain injury. It'll show you if there's an acute hemorrhage. Well, that may be important to know too. Um, and, and doing a cranial nerve exam, a lot of uh, primary care doctors and other people tend to forget about that. But with a head injury, doing a cranial nerve exam, you may find that they may have a, a, uh, a an abducens palsy or something on the exam that may elicit a traumatic uh, brain injury, that they may have had a concussion because we know the brain is in, in, in the skull, which is an enclosed cavity. And the base of the skull has got all these ridges, like very mountainous. And if the, the head gets shaken, it can scratch that bottom part of the brain where some of the cranial nerves run. And patients may get a uh, cranial nerve palsy of some sort. It's very common to see. Well, I shouldn't say common, but it does occur where they have a cranial and a, a sixth nerve palsy or a fourth nerve palsy. And that's picked up on an early exam. That is... Uh... That's way uh, more detail than I was expecting you to give. And I really appreciate that. I think the doctors, uh, some of that went over my head, but I'm sure it didn't go over theirs. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, now, in terms of your interface with, with chiropractors, I mean, you're, you're, you're getting, uh, particularly in PI cases, but I'm certain, I'm sure it's the case in non-PI cases, you're getting, um, some amount of, of referral, uh, from either from chiropractors or in cases where chiropractors are in the mix. What kinds of things are you looking for when you're reading their records? What kinds of things are really helpful for you? What kinds of things might be hurtful or, or unhelpful uh, in a PI context? Uh, what can you share with the chiropractors in terms of like practical practice tips uh, for you? I think it goes back to what I was speaking about earlier is really that examination, looking for neurological signs, straight leg raise tests, just documenting their findings, and they are what they are. Uh, but then when I look back at records, I say, okay, particularly when I do expert work, whether it's defense or plaintiff, I'm looking at those records to see if those pa if that patient had something early uh, after their injury, after uh, uh, they got hurt, uh, or whenever their symptoms started. Uh, the straight leg race, as we know, is, is uh, something related to 
may having a disc bulge where there's a neurotension sign. And so lifting that leg up, if we see that early on, then we have an MRI that shows an L5S1 disc herniation. We could see that there's correlation with it. And, and that all fits in as, as part of the story. So the chiropractors really are the ones setting the whole stage for that patient's treatment later on. If it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. But, uh, you know, the documentation of the neurologic exam is probably the most important thing early on. And you use, uh, you use their documentation of that early exam for what purpose? I mean, take that one more step. So you're, you're, you, you read the, the report, you see a finding or an absence of finding. And then what do you do based on, based on that? So a lot of times, like I said, uh, uh, as a neurosurgeon, we tend to see the patient after maybe pain management. But in between, typically the patient will get referred over to a pain management physician. They may try epidurals or trigger points or medial branch blocks or isotomies. The termination of care obviously is non-operative. When I see it straight from a chiropractor, my little antennas go up because I know there's something bad going on because that's not usually the pattern of how patients get to me. And so when uh, my chiropractic colleagues, usually if they get a patient in the office that's worrisome, they'll call me. They're not going to even refer. They'll say, hey, Andy, I've got this guy. He's got a weak arm. We did the MRI. He's got a big disc at C5-6 or whatever it is. Can you get him in? And of course. Uh, but the, the normal flow would be, okay, pain. They didn't get better with chiropractic care. We don't want to see six months of chiropractic care. I think that's like too much. Usually about, you know, three months is where it caps out. And then you should probably refer it over to a, a pain management physician for treatment. If the, if the, if the treatment is becoming palliative or, or non, um, you know, a plateau. Correct. Yeah. If the, look, a lot of times patients get better with chiropractic care and that's it. And they're done. They move on with life and they don't need any additional treatment. The ones that fail chiropractic treatment usually end up with something more definitive. Right. Um, all right. So let's let's talk a little bit about what we're all here to talk about, which is traumatic brain injuries. And and I know that <clears throat> you're, you're that isn't uh, I mean, you're not a neurologist, so we're, we'll be we'll be certainly sympathetic to to the specialty that we're talking to. But let's let's start writ large. I mean, let's start start like you're talking to a non-doctor idiot uh, such as myself. What what um, th- does it have a technical definition? I and mean, when, when we're diagnosing traumatic brain injury, is this just a word that lawyers like to use because it sounds scary, or is there a, is there a medical definition for that for that diagnosis? Well, the, traumatic brain injury is referring to obviously injury to the brain, and how we define it. There's radiographic findings as well as clinical findings. You have mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, the things that we see as neurosurgeons are probably most times severe going to be in an inpatient setting. Uh, the mild moderate, they'll have maybe a brief loss of consciousness, they'll complain of headaches, they'll get nausea, vertigo, uh, symptoms that really are not operative per se. They won't necessarily develop weakness, but constant headaches. And those patients will get sent over to the neurologist and they'll you know, work them up, they'll treat the symptomatology of what the patient's complaining about. Now, the severe head injuries, the ones that get brought into the ER, 
require some sort of, maybe they get intubated or, or surgeries like a craniotomy if they have a subdural, an epidural, or some patients just have increased intracranial pressure. As I mentioned earlier, our brain sits in our skull and it's an enclosed cavity. Well, what happens with a severe head injury, it gets shaken. What happens next? It starts to swell. So what do we do with these cases with the severe head injuries? Those are ones that we could try to treat a variety of different ways. We have something called an intracranial pressure monitor we could put in the brain and then treat with different medications like diuretics such as mannitol. We use hypertonic saline to help reduce swelling of the brain. Other cases, we may put a ventriculostomy in. And what that is, is we drill a small hole in the skull and put a catheter into the fluid space called the ventricle to drain fluid off. Because as the we want to give max amount of room for that brain to expand. So by diverting the fluid, we give it some more room. And some severe cases, we actually take the skull off or we do a craniectomy and we allow the brain to swell and, uh, uh, you know, over sometimes weeks to months before we put the skull back on. Probably two months ago, I had a case like that. A uh, young guy, 54 years old, had a head injury, was brought in the ER and, and literally he went from talking to not talking and blew a pupil. So he got brain swelling real quick. We got him up to the OR, we took the skull off, we put it in his belly, so safekeeping. And I called his wife the other day and he's walking, talking, we're gonna be putting the skull back on soon. So you 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 put the skull in his belly? Yeah. What why? So it doesn't get lost. That's how the military does it. And that way it came about because they transport the soldiers from different areas, usually to a base where they can have neurosurgeons. So the bone wouldn't get lost, the skull. We'd make an incision in the abdomen and put it in the fat, hide it in there. And so the surgeon at the other side would be able to find it later. But why do we do it now? Because something in an emergency setting, if we don't have access to a special bank to bank the bone, that's what we do. And that's what happened in this case two months ago? Yeah. And you did the surgery? Yeah. That's um, that's the craziest thing I've heard today. So that would be a severe TBI. I think I think in my professional uh, uh, opinion that you're right. It, that would be severe. <clears throat> um, okay, getting my mind back right on this uh, topic that we're talking about. So um, You've got two different, as far as I can tell, and, and there's probably a lot of crossover, but two different types of TBI. You've got the kind that are objectively diagnosable and the kind that are subjectively diagnosable. Now, I'm sure the objectively diagnosable ones have subjective components, but the subjective ones I'm talking about have no objective components. They're purely subjective in, in nature in terms of how we know that somebody has a TBI. Talk to me about what kind of objective findings uh, should be ordered. Should, I mean, early on, just to find out what what kind of TBI are we talking about? Yeah. So early on, I think in the workup, um, if the chiropractor is seeing the patient, obviously we go back to the exam, check for bless you, check for cranial nerves, um, any deficits, and it depends how comfortable they are. If they're not, obviously have them referred out to the neurologists. But the tests that they could order. 
Uh, 3T MRI is something that's being used by a lot of neurologists that do this line of work uh, for uh, TBI. Uh, some are using functional MRI, not as much. Uh, and then it's really getting it to neurologists to really assess the patient. And the neuroradiologist is the one that's going to comment and look for different little things on the on the 3T MRI that can help elucidate if there was a actually traumatic brain injury. Uh, you know, the older we get, sometimes there's findings that could be consistent with that as well, and they may overlap. But I, I leave it into an, uh, the hands or eyes, I should say, of an experienced neuroradiologist. Got it. Who and and much in the same way that chiropractors are familiar with uh, musculoskeletal radiologists or DAC bars who specialize in reading uh, MRIs or X-ray films from a orthopedic standpoint. These are people who have been trained ostensibly to just look at brain MRIs. Yeah, correct. And real quickly, without getting too far into the weeds, I mean, what kinds of things are they looking for? When because I'm sure on a radiological uh, report, they're not saying traumatic brain injury. They're they're being more specific. What what are they looking for specifically? If you can name a couple things, things that you always want to rule out first are you know, obviously any type of hemorrhage. Uh, those are things. But then you look for areas of gliosis, maybe scar tissue. Uh, some sometimes there's bright spots or they call T2 signal changes. And that could be due to a lot of things, not necessarily TBI. And that's something the neuroradiologists will, will comment on. They'll also look for certain areas of the brain that may be more susceptible to a TBI than others. And those are things that the neuroradiologists and experienced neuroradiologists will, will, will comment on. Got it. And now you're, okay, so you've got somebody in a clinical setting. What would you advise uh, to the chiropractor who's doing maybe, a, a, you know, a, a neurologic evaluation from a chiropractic standpoint uh, that would say, um, you know, that we think this person does have a TBI or a mild TBI. I mean, what, what kinds of uh, subjective symptoms would you, would you say, okay, that, that is, you know, that falls into this grouping of, you know, refer to a neurologist to, to deal with. And then what would you say falls into the, like, you need to go to the nearest hospital kind of situation? Yeah, I think they're saying, hey, I think I have a little memory loss. You know, I, I got some headaches, nausea, uh, some vertigo. Probably think more along the neurologist side. If they've got neurological deficits, we had a case not that long ago. Patient had headaches, um, but they had a cranial nerve palsy, a fourth nerve palsy. And that was related to their traumatic brain injury. And subsequently, they got an MRI Initially, the CAT scan was negative. The MRI soon after revealed the delayed hemorrhage. And so when you start having any type of neurological deficit, the complaints of that, then you should send them over to more to the neurosurgeon to rule out uh, any component that may need to be fixed. They may also have ataxia. If you notice balance issues, that can be due sometimes to delayed hemorrhage also. They may have the initial CAT scan, which is negative in the ER, but the su uh, subsequent studies done and it may show bleed, they're gonna have a delayed subdural hemorrhage, something like that. And the patients will say, you know, I'm, I'm walking like a drunken sailor, I don't feel right. Then we get another study and it shows a bleed. Anything blood in the head should go to the neurosurgeon. If there's nothing that we can't fix, typically goes to the neurologist. 
Got it. Yeah. And, and I've, I've, you know, I've had patients or clients rather on my end call, tell me that, that they're, they're having balance issues. They're falling a lot. Um, they're, you know, or, or extreme memory, like, uh, didn't remember how to get home. They've lived there for 20 years. I didn't know how to get there from the grocery store. Uh, forgot how to fold a towel. Uh, the things that are off wrong, that's not normal. Um, and, you know, I mean, those those instances seem at least to me like huge red flags. I mean, not the kind of thing you mess around with. This isn't all oh, my head, you know, hurts. I have I have increased headaches. Uh, you're like, OK, well, that sounds unpleasant, but probably you're going to live that people forgetting how, where they live or, uh, you know, the ability to walk straight that at least from a lay perspective sounds like it's probably indicative of a much bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, forgetting your kids names. You know, those are things that you would expect to be able to do on your daily basis, where all of a sudden you are not, you know, that may be indicative of a mild TBI to potentially moderate. And you said, uh, you said, um, fourth nerve palsy, how did, how, for just for the people who don't know, like me, how does that present? I mean, is that, is that like a, a Bell's palsy or how does it present? Say it again. They may have a lazy eye. Oh, okay. So that's what it looks like. When you have them test the eyes and they're looking, you have them to look up and look down, they're unable to, then it could be a fourth nerve. The sixth nerve, the lateral abducens nerve, looks out this way. So if they're unable to do that, then you may think of a different cranial nerve. Um, so those are those are the two most common that we would see with head injury. And that, like you said, comes from uh, sort of a rattling of the brain and a scratching of those nerves at the bottom. Correct. Scary stuff, man. So, like, the, the I mean, chiropractors. I mean, they're we're commonly talking about them as the quarterback of the case. And, and more and more, I read a study recently. More and more um, over the years, people are seeing their chiropractors as their first medical professional after a motor vehicle accident, more so than P PCPs, more so than ERs or urgent cares. Um, and in that capacity, uh, I think it's important that we talk about not just in a PI context, although, you know, that is what we're here to talk about, um, that it's, you got to be really careful because you're, you are, you are whole body treating in those moments. I mean, you, you are not just musculoskeletal, but you're, you got to be keeping an eye out for things like vision, you know, their eyes not working quite right or um, balance uh, memory issues that are, you know, raising to a level of concern that would want, you know, warrant going to see a, a neurosurgeon versus a neurologist uh, getting a, you know, a, a neuro uh, MRI. I mean, these are, <clears throat> these, you know, this is, this is, I would say outside the normal day to day for most chiropractors. But still within their wheelhouse, if somebody's going to walk in the door and say, I was in a car accident yesterday, and here's my list of symptoms. Yeah, I mean, they're essentially functioning as a primary care physician. And we're seeing more and more of that, you know, people going to the chiropractor and uh, you get, the, you know, early treatment, uh, whether it be some heat packs, ice packs, the starts are unable to do anything else. But they'll complain, it's not uncommon to have, you know, neck pain afterwards and they say, I have headaches. They get occipital cervical headaches. That's very common. And, you know, they get treated with the chiropractor for X amount of business. A lot of times they feel better. And like we talked about earlier, the ones that don't go to the next step, but the patient will complain of that. They'll get, hey, my neck hurts and then I get a headache when I turn. Those things are all related. 
Uh, I, I think that's just fantastic information. With the last four or five minutes we have here, uh, what else? I mean, what else should what else should they know? I mean, we've got a lot of docs on this call right now, and then we've got a ton who end up listening later on as the podcast sort of takes on a new life uh, on YouTube and then on on uh, iTunes. What what are you? I mean, what are you seeing trend wise nowadays that you're thinking they people need to know about this in, in terms of neurosurgery, in terms of TBIs? Uh, if if the first line of defense is chiropractors more and more, what what should they be aware of from your perspective? Uh, what's coming down the pike and what and what you know what what sorts of things are you seeing it's, you know as uh you spoke earlier as a neurosurgeon we're kind of the end game and things so we get called at the, the most severe problems but there's so many things in between that uh where they still need treatment and uh, i think neurologists more and more are getting involved that we're seeing a lot of patients uh, having tbis but also you know, not related to car accidents, kids in sports and football, you know, giving lectures on those things. And and we're seeing kids now at a younger age also with sports having these issues. So it's a combination of everything. And I, and I think the main thing is open lines of communication. You know, now we live in this age of, uh, oh, just email, send the referral out. If you're concerned, I think the best way for anything is pick up the phone and call you know, old school. And I, uh, I use my phone a lot, you know, texting or communicating with primary care doctors, therapists, chiropractors, other specialists and colleagues. If you suspect anything and you're worried and you're not sure, call. I think that's the best way. You know, whoever you work with in your community is, hey, I got a question. I got a patient here. What can I do? At the end of the day, we're here to take care of the patient, get them better, and being the chiropractor, they're really the first line, but don't feel you're bothering somebody. Uh, you know, we're here to take care of people, and I think they should not be shy about it and call if you have a question. Um, is that, I mean, is that a realistic option? I mean, it, it, do, do, do you think chiropractors should be picking up the phone and calling neurologists or neurosurgeons at their office and saying, hey, I have a patient here and I have a quick question? I mean, that, that to me, sounds almost too logical and, and rational for the world I live in. I think if they're unsure and they got someone that not, they're not sure what to do with, then yes. If they're like, Oh yeah, I've dealt with this before. We need to refer you over to neurologists. Yeah. Don't bother them. But if you get a case that you find something unique about on the exam and, and really you're not sure what to do with it, I do get, I probably get, three to four calls a week from a different chiropractors asking questions. I get primary care docs probably five to 10 a week asking questions. And then every now and then I'll get one of my younger colleagues, a, a neurosurgeon orthospine asking questions also. And at the end of the day, we're in this community of taking care of patients. So we want to provide the best care. I totally agree with you, man. And 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 I've actually heard from uh, defense attorneys and insurance adjusters that like that sort of communication screams legitimate, authentic, non you know biased care. When when you when you pick up the phone and you, and you call over to a surgeon's office and the chiro and the surgeon have a five minute conversation about what's going on with a patient and then both sides end up documenting it quickly in their notes, like how. Ha- 
that it screams legitimate. It screams authentic. It screams these are two people who are just trying. They're treaters. They're, they're not biased. They're not trying to win a case. They're not trying to make people a lot of money in a PI. They're just trying to get their patient better. And I think I think that that, that that's worth noting because I think so often doctors who work in the med legal space get concerned about the optics of what they're doing or not doing, what they're writing or not writing. I know that the docs on this call and the docs we work with, they're so, they're trying so hard to treat their patients right and be, and be good doctors um, and also operate well within the PI space. But, but this primarily wanting to do right by their patients thing. And I think one of the best things you can do is have that communication be open with the other, the treatment team um, and not be afraid to have that communication, not think that it in any way diminishes your individual specialty, but rather uh, involve more people in the treatment care. Cause how, I mean, the patient obviously benefits uh, in those, in the end there. Um, yeah. I've called radiologists before. I looked at films and found something that, you know, I thought was different. I had them amend the report. It's another set of eyes. Right. Right. And who doesn't want another set of eyes? Yeah. Um, Doc, we're running out of time, and I want to say a couple of things. One is thank you so much for being here. The uh, your 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 wisdom on this stuff is is incredible, and uh, I had no idea when we talked today that we were going to go quite as deep as we did. I think the chiropractors got way more out of it uh, than uh, I had anticipated. We all would, so that was fantastic. Um, also, I want to promote a couple of quick things. We are doing our annual uh, advanced seminar. It's November eleventh. It's going to be at the Westin in Anaheim, right next to Disneyland. Um, a lot of great speakers. Uh, check out our website, seansteel.com events, and you will see, uh, not right this second, uh, but soon the tickets will be available for that. Um, and I want to promote the book, which is right here, The Intelligent Chiropractor's Guide to Survival, uh, with uh, two decent-looking people on the cover. Um, this is... Uh, the culmination of many years of work uh, in the PI space for chiropractors. So if you haven't taken a look at that, check it out. It's on Amazon. It was an Amazon bestseller for half a minute. That was kind of cool. Um, and one last thing I want to say is, uh, oh, the podcast, this podcast, the one you're actually listening to right now is available on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, everywhere you get your podcast. The video from this will also be available on YouTube. Uh, if you have friends that would benefit from hearing this sort of thing, this content, uh, go ahead and share it with them. Dr. Fox, thank you as always for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex, for having me again. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care, man. Take care. Bye-bye.